Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Makol Sabat. Makol is a turbulent multi-phase flow researcher working on aerosol transport and deposition as well as other environmental related projects. She holds a master's in mechanical engineering from the University of Balamand in Lebanon and a research master's from Ecole Centrale Paris in aeronautical and aerospace engineering. She has a PhD from the University of Paris Eclaim France and is currently an assistant professor at the University of Balamand where she works on modeling and simulation of air pollution and waste to energy processes. She is a member of a Lebanese technical committee for setting the standards of air quality characterization and air pollutant emissions in Lebanon. Our guest today is an expert in analytical chemistry with a focus on atmospheric chemistry, inhalable and airborne particles, environmental analysis as well as photochemistry. She has a wide range of research from investigating the toxic and carcinogenic chemicals of e-cigarettes and hookahs through state-of-the-art physical and chemical characterization to studying medicinal plants by extracting and identifying their chemical profiles. She has a master's degree from California State University Long Beach and a PhD on catalytical processes and reactions at surfaces from University of Southern California. She is currently a professor at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon where she established the Atmospheric and Analytical Laboratory. She directs several multidisciplinary research projects as well as education and citizen science programs. In 2016, she received the Lebanese National Council for Scientific Research Award in the environmental category. She has received the L'Oréal UNESCO International Award for Women in Science, the National Order of Cedar from the President of the Lebanese Republic, and is among BBC's top 100 inspiring and influential women from around the world. I am excited to welcome our guest, Professor Najat Saliba. Welcome to the show, Najat and Makol. Thank you, Shahzad, for the opportunity of interviewing Professor Najat Saliba. Atmospheric Taze motto starts from around the world. The story today will be told by a research idol from Lebanon. Professor Najat, your participation today at Atmospheric Taze podcast is highly acknowledged, and I am personally privileged to be your interviewer. Thank you, Shahzad, and thank you, Makol, for this opportunity. I understand that this opportunity highlights the work of scientists at the local level whose researches are of global relevance. Thank you for the opportunity. Professor Najat, as Shahzad already mentioned, you have a PhD in analytical chemistry, and one of your main research topics is atmospheric chemistry. What motivated you to study chemistry, and how did you become interested in atmospheric chemistry and air pollution in specific? My passion for chemistry came from wanting to know the essence of the matters. So this was a motivation for me to really dig deep into the understanding of what matters are formed of. And I could not find anything better than chemistry to actually pursue this knowledge and understand the essence of life and the essence of everything that is around us. So that's in terms of chemistry. In terms of atmospheric and analytical chemistry, it came later to actually wanting to know more about what surrounds us. What type of air do we breathe? What type of 
pollution and pollution sources do we actually use and affect the earth and affect the air? And what are the transformations of these pollutants in the air? I thought this was fascinating. And most of the fascination came from looking at the sky, watching the different colors that the sky takes, and also seeing clouds forming and dissipating. So all of this, I always looked at it from a chemistry perspective and a chemistry eye. It's fascinating, actually. Your passion is very clear. Indeed. (laughs) Thank you. The study of tobacco products, such as investigating the toxic and carcinogenic chemical constituents of electronic cigarettes and water pipes, seem to be one of the essential parts of your research topics. Is there a reason behind that? We go back to the the local relevance. And when I came back from the U.S. after I did my postdoc with Dr. Barbara Finlayson-Pitts, I wanted to start a research lab in Lebanon, especially at the American University of Beirut. And as soon as I set, you know, ground here, I wanted to do research that is of local relevance, of course, of global importance. So starting my research with water pipe and assessing air pollution in Lebanon and understanding the dust events in the region were extremely important because I didn't want to imitate anyone. I just wanted to serve where I live and the region from where I come from. So this was the main motive of why I looked at inhalable particles coming from water pipe smoke that is a habit or practice that is very common to the region, smoking water pipe. And it came later over the years, it turned out to be of global importance because a lot of people started smoking water pipe all across the world and not only in here. But what started of local relevance turned out to be of global importance. Again, I would like to take this opportunity to also suggest to all the people who go back, who learn from the West and learn from the North, to go back and use this knowledge and apply it in their context and in their local country to serve their local people. And this is exactly what I did. That's really very special. Actually, we will be having three main sections. The first one is related to e-cigarettes and a water pipe. And then we are going to talk about your contribution in terms of assessing air pollution. At the end, we will have a conclusion about uh, how you affected the different cultures that we have in Lebanon and in the region. So in the following section, we will be focusing on tobacco products. And we will start with debunking the myth around e-cigarettes and then water pipe. So first of all, Professor Najat, you not only studied the toxicant behavior amid from e-cigarettes, but also you hired these results in order to advise regulatory bodies on future policies. Can you tell us a little bit more about this research and its influence on the related regulations? Before I answer the question directly, I would like to say that most of my work has been in collaboration with several of my colleagues here in AUB and also in Virginia Commonwealth University in the case of electronic cigarettes and water pipe and other colleagues in the case of uh, air pollution. So starting with electronic cigarettes, it's very important to highlight how a group in mechanical engineering 
training led by Dr. Alan Shahadi and a group in psychology and behavioral psychology led by Dr. Thomas Eisenberg in VCU and myself as a chemist came all together with our group of postdocs and graduate students, even undergraduate students, put all our minds together in order to look at the problem from a holistic perspective. What do I mean by this? It is extremely important to look at the device and try to be able to reverse engineer it, meaning we need a robot to smoke and vape the electronic cigarettes in the lab. And this is the work of Dr. Alan Shahadi and his team. So they usually take the devices that are commonly popular among the youth and others in the world and they reverse engineer them so that a robot can emulate and simulate the behavior of a vapor or a smoker. And then after they do that, we as chemists can come and collect the filters that were uh, used to collect the smoke and, of course, the gas phase components to study them and analyze them. At the same time, the topography of how the robot is going to smoke or vape the electronic cigarettes is registered at Virginia Commonwealth Universities, where they bring in subjects and they record their behavior of vaping. And from there, we can translate that into the robot's behavior of smoking. I'm just illustrating here the interdisciplinarity and the importance of this interdisciplinarity in order for us to be able to produce results that are of high relevance to the Federal Drug Administration that is supporting this work and other regulatory bodies who will be able to take those results and extrapolate policies and regulations. So having said that, we were able to learn a lot more about the chemistry of electronic cigarettes. And what started as a word vaping, insinuating that the smoke that's coming from the electronic cigarette is only vapor, that means water vapor, that is not true. A lot of carbonyl compounds, meaning formaldehyde, acetaldehyde, metacrylene or acrylene and others, are emitted from the propylene glycol and the vegetable glycerin liquid that is used as a solvent for nicotine. Let me try also to say that the electronic cigarette is basically formed of a coil that heats a mixture, a solution of propylene glycol, vegetable glycerin, and nicotine. Later, they also added flavors to it. So just by the mere fact of heating, we have emission of aldehydes that are well known to be toxic to the body. So debunking the myth is basically vaping, the word vaping, even if it insinuates that you have vapor emitted from the electronic cigarette is not true. Also, my lab was able to show that we have a substantial amount of phenols, furans, and other toxic chemicals. So as a take-home message, can we say that the reduced-risk smoking products are not really living up to their name? That's a very big statement that 
I as a chemist cannot answer, but we as a group have been able to look into this question, assessing the addiction component and the change in the behavior, whether the person is a dual user of electronic cigarettes and tobacco cigarettes, whether the person is a single user, whether the person is a naive user, meaning that they just started to smoke. And all the researchers are leading to show that that, you know, behaviors are different. But what we are sure of that people who never smoked before are now getting addicted to smoking electronic cigarettes. So what started as a modified risk tobacco product probably have served heavy tobacco smokers to stop or to reduce their risk but have also paved the way for non-users to actually start using uh, those electronic devices. So I don't think there is easy answer to your question, McCall. But according to what you are saying, this means that still e-cigarettes in general, they have some harmful effect on public health. They do, and we know very little. That's okay. also very important. So what we know is very little because the technology and the commercial aspect of electronic cigarettes is rapidly growing. And also the, the number of people who are using electronic cigarettes is also growing very rapidly. Since this number is growing very rapidly, can we talk about passive vaping and the domain of e-cigarettes? depends on the environment. So if we're talking about closed environment, there is some aldehyde emissions that will remain in closed environment for quite some time before they dissipate. The main thing that I don't want to go into is comparing tobacco smoke to electronic cigarettes. I mean, people tend to do this. I would like to always make the comparison between a clean environment and an electronic cigarettes and not electronic cigarettes and tobacco because, of course, tobacco smoke emit toxins in high amounts. And this is what our research has shown, that the amount of toxins that is emitted from tobacco smoke is much higher than the amount of toxins that is emitted from electronic cigarettes. But it doesn't mean that electronic cigarettes is harmless. It means that when you compare electronic cigarettes to clean environment, you see that a lot of toxins are all also emitted from electronic cigarettes. Thank you so much. That's very interesting. My following question in this domain is about the flavoring, since we know that whenever people are using e-cigarettes, one of the main advantage that they find is that they can use some flavoring and uh, even the smell can be something acceptable. So do these types of flavoring add some additional respiratory hazard for health? Flavoring has been a major, major topic of research in electronic cigarettes because they consider it as an appealing product to most of the users. So people have been mesmerized by the myriad of flavorings in the electronic cigarette industry. And we're talking about over 15,000 different kinds of flavoring. There are a lot of studies that showed that Aldehydes are increased when you're using flavored liquids and also other products like our research have shown that sweet flavors are a source of furans and furans are very toxic. 
And we also showed that flavored electronic cigarettes or liquids in electronic cigarettes are also a source of increased reactive oxygen species. In short, yes, we can say that flavorants are precursors of several toxins that are emitted during the smoking or the vape. So what about the pod mods uh, versus the conventional electronic cigarettes? I've heard you saying that you don't want this comparison of e-cigarettes versus traditional uh, smoking. But can we compare a little bit e-cigarettes, the conventional one, versus what is very famous nowadays, such as Juul and other? Yes, we have done those comparisons. Again, and the combination is so complex and so uh, huge. By design, the electronic cigarettes have led uh, the users to actually manipulate the composition. It manipulates the power. It manipulates the, the way you smoke it. It's not like the cigarette. You buy it with one gram of tobacco and it has a, a special length and it burns at more or less uh, the same temperature and all. In electronic cigarettes, the market has opened up uh, the flexibility of using different types of liquids, different concentrations of nicotine. It has also included coil, dual coil, quadruple coil, and even octuple coil. It has also presented itself with different uh, power, different wattages. And so the user feels like he or she is empowered to actually design it his own or her own electronic cigarettes. This is where the complexity comes. It becomes so difficult for us as researchers to actually choose a model and say, okay, this is how much electronic cigarettes is emitting of toxins. It doesn't work this way. What we do in the lab, we try to see the most popular behaviors and how they manifest and the most popular models. And what we do is we try to simulate them in the lab. There is no one type, one kind of electronic cigarettes. There is the first model versus the second generations versus the third generations. And all of these, and also we have at the end the Juul that became so popular among youth. Juul is, does not give the user the flexibility of redesigning. But what we learned from Juuls is that it has higher level of nicotine concentration and this nicotine comes in a salty form and hence what we're studying now is whether the salty nicotine is more addictive than free-based nicotine. Thank you. Now we will move on into second part of the topic related to smoking. And we are going to focus on hookah, shisha, water pipe, nargile, argile, hubble bubble, booza, bori. They are all the names for one water-based tobacco device that owes its strength to the misperception of being less harmful than cigarettes and the fact that it is appealing with various flavors. It first emerged in India, Iran, Africa, and the Middle East, but recently it also gained popularity in the Western world. So Professor Najat, you established international protocols for the chemical studies of water pipe, and you provided policymakers worldwide with scientific evidence to support the ban of indoor working pipe smoking. What are the health effects of shisha on its smoker and secondhand smoker? And how can we enforce the set policies, especially in third world countries? 
Thank you for the question. I just want to also reiterate the importance of the interdisciplinary work that went into the water pipe. And why is this? Because we want to standardize at least the way people smoke water pipe in order for us to assess the chemical emissions from the mainstream smoke and the sidestream smoke. So people here in Lebanon and in the Middle Eastern region believed that the smoke was dissolving in the water because the smoke bubbles in the water before it is inhaled. And for us to be able to unravel this myth, we wanted to standardize the water pipe smoke. Meaning what? Standardize the amount of water that you put in the bowl, the length of the body of the water pipe, the amount of tobacco that we put on the top and on the head, and also standardize the number of charcoals that you put on top of the tobacco in order for the user to heat the tobacco while smoking the water pipe. And what was interesting is that students went into several cafes in Lebanon and they actually registered the way people smoke water pipe. They took the average of tobacco in the heads and they also watched how many charcoals are changed during a session. What they came up with is what later was called the Beirut method of smoking water pipe. And this consisted of the length of the water pipe session, the interpuff duration, the puff duration and volume of air that the user inhales and the amount of water and so on and so forth. So having standardized this, we then started assessing the chemical composition of the mainstream and the water stream smoke. And to our surprise, we saw that the amount of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, mainly benzoapyrene, is 20 times higher than from a regular cigarette. The CO was also very high and the nicotine and the amount of grease, the sludge that comes from the tobacco, that also was very high. And none of this was dissolved in the water. And McCall, you are a physicist and you know that there is a residence time in the water that will allow the particle to dissolve. And so by bubbling the smoke inside the water, particles that were inhaled did not have enough time to dissolve. Most of it was actually carried onto the mainstream, onto the tube, and then to the inhaler. The results were shocking, and this is why we started uh, disseminating the knowledge in seminars and in, uh, with policy regulations, pushing to at least ban smoking of water pipe indoors. So practically speaking, smoking water pipes is even more dangerous to our health than the usual smoking. Extremely dangerous. Part of the toxins come from the charcoal itself. So charcoal is basically a collection of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are classified as carcinogens by many health agencies around the world. So in addition to that, you have the aldehydes because most of the youth, they smoke masal. Masal means, you know, soaked in sugar. 
any sweeteners upon heating will produce aldehyde. So we saw a large amount of aldehydes and we know that acetaldehyde, when mixed with nicotine, it enhances the addiction of nicotine. So from all aspects and no matter how you look at it, you can see that the amount of toxins and the nature of toxins is highly carcinogenic in higher quantities than what when we compare it to cigarettes. It's not only a risk on the smoker itself, but also on the people surrounding it, especially if it is a closed-door scenario. Exactly. Our studies showed that sidestream smoke is also very dangerous because the fume that comes out from the charcoal itself is heavy in polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So for sidestream smoking, if a kid is sitting next to his mom, he will be smoking two cigarettes per session of argile. That's really dangerous. How can we spread awareness around hazardous effects of tobacco products in general? And how can this awareness be translated into actions? If the question is in Lebanon, I learned from my colleagues that there is an extreme need to do those awareness talks in schools. Most of the addiction happens when uh, people start smoking at early ages. In addition to that, and this is not applied only to Lebanon, what is also important is that there is a great need to lobby in order for policymakers to ban water pipe smoking and tobacco smoking indoors. And I think uh, now a lot of airplanes and a lot of indoor uh, facilities also are stopping vaping indoors as well. Our second session will be around pollution in Lebanon. I think most of the Lebanese and more generally the people who know even a bit about Professor Najat cannot miss her connection to nature. Professor, hearing that you call yourself the daughter of the earth reveals why you are a beacon of nature preservation and gladiator for environmental protection. You initiated many projects to investigate air pollution in Lebanon and the Middle East in general, and developed innovative procedures to study atmospheric pollutants. How serious is air pollution in the region and particularly in Lebanon? Let me start by talking about the Middle Eastern region. In the Middle East, we live next to very large deserts, mainly the Saharan Desert and the Arabian Desert. Both of these are major sources of biogenic emission. On top of this, there is a huge industrial revolution in the Gulf countries in particular. However, I know for a fact, and by working with the United Nations of Environmental Program, that the Gulf countries and some of the Middle Eastern countries are trying very hard to reduce air pollution, mainly or especially the air pollution that they have control over, that is the industrial emissions. However, there is no way or impossible way to reduce the biogenic emissions coming from the desert. The reason why I'm saying this, it's because usually those Gulf countries or Middle Eastern countries are compared or are labeled with high pollution when they are compared to European countries. And you can see that it's very difficult to compare these two countries or this, these two sets of countries together, considering that the context in which they are located is different. The countries over in our part of the world are working hand in hand with WHO in order for them to either 
redefine the recommended guidelines of air pollution for our region or take in consideration when they label the different countries of whether or not they are highly polluted. This is extremely important because when you live on a sea of dust coming from the desert, it will be very difficult to reduce this amount and comply with the recommendations that is suggested by WHO. In Lebanon, it's a different story. Lebanon is like many other cities in the region that are emerging from war. And cities emerging from war usually have no infrastructure whatsoever. One of the main infrastructure that is needed is the power supply over 24 hours. And so we have been suffering from lack of the government being able to provide electricity and we have subsidized this lag by diesel generators. I find the use of diesel generators and the mushrooming of diesel generators in between buildings all over Lebanon is an extreme violation of human rights. And yes, Makol, I am an advocate. I think air pollution is a violation of human rights. And air pollution kills 7 million people yearly. It's a silent killer. And if we can avoid air pollution, why doesn't the government do anything? And why don't people fight for their rights? And that's why I consider myself an advocate of clean air, because it's my right, my human right to live and breathe clean air. Countries that are not able to provide their citizens with basic human rights like electricity so that they don't have to plant a diesel generator next to their bedroom is basically something that we should not accept and we should fight against it. This is one of the major violations that my country unfortunately has done. And there is also ill-maintained power plants and, uh, you know, the dumping of waste all over the country. All of these are avoidable and should be managed so that people in my country live under clean air. No one could have said it in a better way. I completely agree with you. Uh, you talked about the waste problem also in Lebanon. And everyone who is following a little bit what's happening in Lebanon knows that one of our biggest problem is waste management. And this was actually documented with evidence by the River of Trash in 2016. So you fight a tooth and nail to open the open air burn, burning of Lebanese waste, as well as the incineration. I think most of the people understand why you are fighting for the first, which is the open air burning. But can you please elaborate on why you are completely against the incineration? Thank you for this question. I am not against incineration in general, and I am in no position to actually criticize or comment on how incinerators work because I'm not an engineer. I'm an air pollution specialist. And when I see that my government cannot take care of a power plant and I see black fume coming from a power plant on daily basis continuously, I know for a fact that the government is not able to actually do its own diligence, quality control, quality assurance to make sure that any burner is going to comply 
with the regulations. It's the lack, the inability of my government to be able to control pollution that I'm opposing to. I'm not opposing incinerators, but I'm opposing incinerators in Lebanon. And our studies have shown that incinerators cost-wise are not a good solution for Lebanon as well. So we made our studies based on the cost analysis and also on pollution analysis. And until my government proves that they are capable of controlling the emissions of the power plants and different factories all around the country, I cannot accept that they are entrusted with such a huge undertaking. You can say that again. My following question in this domain is about one of your recent studies on combustion markers, where you compared the level that you have in the urine samples in Lebanon to, for example, China or another place. Result is that we have high combustion markers. Is this due to all these combustion gases that we are breathing, whether from the power plants or from diesel or from the way waste is not well managed in Lebanon? Exactly. This is what our study showed. And apparently, it's not unusual to see that people who live in polluted environments like Lebanon not specifically Lebanon, they experience markers and symptoms that are similar to smokers. What our study, if we want to vulgarize the science, we can say that every one of us is actually a smoker in Lebanon due to the high levels of pollution. Since you mentioned our government and the fact that it doesn't have the capacity and maybe it's not even willing to do its job. I will go back to what's happened in the Beirut blast. Do you think that our government is doing what it takes? And the second one, is this blast affected the air pollution locally and regionally? As an analytical chemist, there are standards of how we deal with chemicals. There should be standards first, and there should be enforcement of standards. And those two were not there. How could they store ammonium nitrate in such a huge quantity, along with fireworks and tires and coffee and tea? Where are the standards? Where are the chemical hazardous standards? How could I say that my government was doing anything when they were storing fireworks next to the most explosive chemical of all? So definitely they're not doing their work. And over and above this, the people who worked at the port, they found many other chemicals that were improperly stored as well. So definitely there is inefficiency, there is negligence, there is corruption. And most of all, this whole thing led to the death of 210 people and 6,000 people injured. This is a crime, in my opinion. In terms of air pollution, I think we're going to live years bearing the consequences of this blast. It's not going to go away. Probably the NO2 that was seen during the explosion dissipated the second day after the blast. But the destruction of the buildings and the demolition of all these buildings and reconstruction is going to produce lots of air pollution that people in the devastated area are going to inhale for years to come. 
In addition, we see piles and piles of rubble and metal scrap and a lot of asbestos that came from the containers and the hangars at the port. These are all accumulated in piles at the port. Every time the wind blows from the port directly into the city, is entraining asbestos and other chemicals that have not been cleaned yet. We're not going to be done soon. So if we are not only talking about the result, direct result of the blast itself, but we're talking about asbestos that is not considered as a hazard that it is, it is cancerogenic, right? Absolutely. Okay. Asbestos should not be anywhere. And still it is here. The government is not doing anything to dispose it in the right way. Yeah, because that's very costly and it's pure ignorance or chosen to be ignorant. We are going to move to the last two questions. The first one is that you say women have the power to move mountains because we are inclusive. Women can see the bigger picture and nature is she. But around the world in general, and in a very noticeable way in Lebanon, we have few women in senior position, not to mention influential women who are willing to fight for their goals and dreams in challenging domains such as science, technology, engineering, and math. How do you encourage ladies to venture into these fields? I now teach a chemical engineering class. 70% of the class is women. Our girls are learning. Our girls are smart. The problem is, what jobs do we offer them? What is the future holding them in Lebanon? That is the problem. I think we need to work on offering them opportunities, opening labs, doing manufacturing, promoting creativity. The problem is not in our education system. The problem is in the job market system that we're not working as hard to open the job market for them, the opportunities for them. Our students, and especially the girls who travel to do PhD and continue in research in medicine or in engineering, excel outside Lebanon. So what we need in Lebanon is not to promote the girls in the educational system because they are good and they are doing well. The problem is what type of jobs are we offering them after they graduate? And this is where I would like us women, you and me, to think and to put our resources so that we can create the opportunity for them to work and to benefit the country. This is completely true. Actually, with our humble resources, if we don't have the solidarity, we're not able to reach actual job market that should be present. And unfortunately, as you said, with the corruption that we are having, it makes the situation even harder. We have a very special woman in Lebanon who was awarded a very important award in the L'Oréal UNESCO in 2019. And when she was receiving the International Award for Women in Science, she invited us all to check the fact that our own destiny is built by us. We can build it incrementally with passion, knowledge, and science. This very special woman researcher is you, Professor Najat Saliba. Can you still send a similar invitation after Beirut blast and all the problems that we are having for the devastated Lebanese who are suffocated by corruption and pain? Science is actually the solution to our problems as well. And this is why we created Khadid Beirut. Khadid Beirut is experts in action. 
we need to put our science into action. And science doesn't do miracles from one day to the second. We all know when we do research that this is a long process and it's built incrementally and collectively. So I say it again and again, we need to rebuild Beirut and we need to rebuild our country. But we have to be patient. We have to do it with science. We have to do it with uh, evidence. And we have to do it to respond to our needs. I don't want to do science that is good for Americans. They know how to do it better than me. But Lebanon needs me to do science for it. And that's why I want all the scientists in Lebanon to work hand in hand to provide the evidence so that we can build our country on sound and strong foundation. Our country needs the scientists more than any time else before. This is where our expertise needs to be put into action so that we can build it right this time and build it better. You mentioned Khadid Beirut, so can you tell us a little bit about this amazing project? Khadid Beirut came to life the second day after the blast, August 5th, 2020. When us as experts from AUB and from all Lebanon, we looked at each other and we felt that our dignity was shaken because we could not believe what happened. And we said, how can we help our country? And the only way we found the answer is by putting all what we know into action. And this is what we have been doing. For the last six months, we have not slept. We have been putting our expertise into action from health, from education, from environment, and from supporting small and medium businesses. We came all together. We put strategies that we usually do in academia, but this time for our country. We discussed the plans and we responded to the community needs. And here we are ready to go on the ground to start collecting the evidence in order for us to propose the solutions. So we are experts in putting all what we know into action. And we are open for any suggestion from Lebanon and from all over the world. We have gathered ourselves and we have lots of people, members of Khadid Beirut from all walks of life and from all corners of the world coming together, putting their expertise together in order for us to create small models of excellence so that we are proud of what we're doing and we are teaching the whole world and even people in Lebanon on how to do it better so that it is sustained. You like to call yourself the daughter of the earth, but I do believe that Lebanese would like to call you the daughter of heaven. I am really honored to be your interviewer, and I thank you so much for everything that you shared with us and for the highlight that you put specifically on Lebanon in this interview. Thank you. Thank you, Macaulay. It was an honor for me to actually speak to you in such an interesting way. Your questions were amazing. Thank you so much. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Professor Najat Saliba, and our interviewer, Dr. Mukul Sabath, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.